Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everybody, welcome back to One Broken Mom. This week, I'm really happy to have a guest on the show that came as a referral from a listener, but I have to be super clear that that listener is Pam Leo, (laughs) and she's a former guest, and some of you have probably heard her episode that we did some time ago. She's the author of a seminal book about parenting that was published back in 2005 called Connection Parenting, and so when Pam says someone is worth a chat with, I definitely listen up, so thank you very much, Pam. Um, So today I have with me Robin Grill, who's a psychotherapist, author, and a parent coach based out of Australia. So you'll hear a delightful differently, uh, different accent than we've had on the show before. And he has a new book called Inner Child Journeys, How Our Children Grow Us Up. And he's here to talk about this strategy and guidebook for understanding our own childhood, which is a topic, as you guys know, we all cover here quite a bit on One Broken Mom. But with the intent of understanding that childhood so that we can actually understand our own children, whether we are a parent or even a teacher, which I think is a super important direction here. So welcome to the show, Robin. It's so good to be with you, Ami. Well, so the book, like I mentioned right before we started um, the official uh, episode here, is that it's really detailed. It's well-written. I'm grabbing my copy so that everybody can see what it looks like. And there'll be a link in the um, podcast notes to it. And we could take more than an hour talking about everything that's into it. So I'd like to start, though, with your journey up to the point of crafting this important instruction manual um, for healing for parents and school teachers. How did you get to this place? For sure. Thank you. And that that is a good question because uh, the book was born out of the experiences that came to me as a result of the first two books that I wrote. Uh, And the first two, the first book being a sociological book about the history of parenting around the world that, that uh, was very fascinating to me. Um, It was a mind blowing discovery of how um, the, the customary child rearing customs of a nation will determine the way that the nation behaves one and two generations later mm-hmm. so that authoritarian styles of parenting and education create authoritarian government um, indirectly but, but surely, um, whereas a, a kind of a listening style of parenting, a more democratic negotiated style of parenting that, that, um, that makes the emotional development of children important, that when that starts to predominate, it, it it moves a nation towards a more democratic style of government. Mm-hmm. It creates a more peaceful society. And I can't think of anything more important to understand right now in, 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 um, in this era, in this moment in history. So um, that led me to write a second book, which was more a direct conversation with mums and dads. And I'm interested in what, what 
mums and dads need, not just what the child needs. Mm-hmm. I really view the relationship as in many ways quite mutual. We, we, we're all growing up. The fact of becoming parents grows us up immensely, immensely. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do not think that a, that a, a pre-parent person can properly imagine who they are going to be once their child has arrived. Right, they, right. They, they kind of tear us open in so many ways. Well, and, you, and it's um, funny that you yeah. say that. Um, I'm sorry. I know we have a delay, so everybody, I hopefully this doesn't end up being annoying <laughs> because he is in Australia. I am in Washington State um, in the U.S. Um, but you're you're right that the act of being a parent, I, I can't imagine anybody trying to heal truly deeply if they don't actually have kids because the kids do reveal something so different in all of us um, that if we didn't have children and our neurons bouncing off of each other that we probably wouldn't have a bulk of the experiences that can be incredibly frustrating and enlightening at the same time so um sorry that's so true and that 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 uh that's what my third book my current new book is about the second book just to briefly complete that was taking care of what mums and dads need as well for that journey. Um, and, and my focus is on the emotional development of, of children. Um, so, so that's the second book. And because my first two books led me to run a lot of workshops, I get a lot of invitations to speak I'm in many countries around the world and all over Australia. And, and, and um, I'm really kind of across the interactions that happen through the media and letters to the editor or whatever you know, with parenting articles and um, gosh, we're such, so much in the era of um, transition where there's an old style of parenting that's predominantly authoritarian, painfully but surely being replaced by a new style of parenting which is more democratic, where it's not just do, do as I say or else, mm-hmm. but that we, we're trying to learn how to be listeners at every stage, how to even when we don't agree with our children and we must set a boundary and say no to behavior, but we, we, there's a kind of a generational effect going on around the world where, where people are voluntarily evolving into wanting to be better listeners. It's a remarkable evolutionary thing that's going on. And we all, we're new at it, I think, in the human story. And so we all, of course, we falter. We make a ton of mistakes, like any learning person does but it's created a lot of friction this change an enormous amount of friction and um i've noticed that there is an absolute epidemic of parent guilt and it's an excruciating sensation Mm -hmm. and uh made worse if anything in one way by the fact that there are so many parenting books everywhere you know it's the first time in human history that there's now a science of parenting there's a science of childhood development and uh you know, you'd think that that's a really good thing. Mostly it is. I'm overjoyed about that. We have so much more of a clear indication. Because science tells us, you know, um, say in history we would get our parenting expertise by having, you know, 14 children, which even then is a very, very tiny sample size if you put your science hat on. Mm-hmm. You still don't get a broad picture. Science is telling us at the, at the press of the button how different styles of parenting affect tens of thousands of children. So we really get a good pattern. And we've also got the brain sciences now as well that, that shows very clearly on an image the way that 
human interaction and relationship affects the child's brain. And pause to think how terrifying that is for all of us. Right. There's no answer. (laughs) Oh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's the fact, no, there are answers all of a sudden. That's what's terrifying (laughs) because in now, and this is what I see happening because I've spoken to literally thousands of parents now. And what's happening is that now we know all of the things that we can get wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody is, is paralyzed with fear about the D word, right? And there should be a drum roll right now and some shark music. The, the D word, damage. And people come up all the time and, you know, quietly and, and sheepishly and they say to me, have I damaged my child? That day when I, when I was overwhelmed, I was so overwhelmed and stressed and I screamed. And my life was difficult and, and, and I, haven't, I just haven't been patient. And um, there's conflict, there's illness, there's financial troubles. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not there emotionally for my kids for a month straight. Um, you know, I was on the phone. I didn't hear my baby calling for me and, and I left my baby crying and calling for me for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, um, etc. Mm-hmm. So, and boy, that's scary. And we've read the books and we're all wringing our hands in fear that we have damaged our child's brain. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of anything that cramps the parent's style more than, than, than that. You see, knowledge comes with a burden. And um, it really made me realize that there's unfinished business in the world of parenting literature, severely unfinished business. And that's what made me want to write my third book, the one that, that you and I will talk about today, uh, which is to do with the fact that not one of us as parenting authors live up to the things that we say our children need in our books. Yeah. I Can agree. I make that... <laughs> Can I make that abundantly clear? (laughs) Neither do the readers. Mm -hmm. You know, call it an aspirational target. Call it a truth about what our children need. We will all fail that. Um, Serially. And there are two big reasons why we do that. And we need to start talking about that. Otherwise, everyone in the world is isolated, putting out a smile of a happy family in the shopping mall, but inside feeling the dread that it's not that good at home. Sometimes it's better than good. Sometimes it's magnificent. And I do want to say we all exceed sometimes our best expectations of ourselves because the fact of having a child will usually open your heart wider than where it has ever been. Mm-hmm. I see that a lot. I feel it for me as a father. Um, we kind of broken open uh, by our children and their, their mere existence and their eyes, the sound of their voice, their little feet, their laughter, their tears. We're torn open. What a beautiful thing that is for our growth. It brings out things from inside us that we didn't know we had, but it also brings out our shadow sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, so the 
two big reasons why we are sometimes just magnificent and incredibly um, giving as parents, and often we fail. We let our children down, we disappoint them, we wound them. We have to start acknowledging that we wound them. Two big reasons. One is that very few parents have the kind of support that realistically they need in the nuclear family reality. That was a wrong turn in history. It's a failed experiment. We need to turn away from it. We are designed, uh, and this is a very, very clear and consistent finding of anthropology. We are designed to parent cooperatively in a tribal environment. I do not mean we need to go back to live as hunter-gatherers. I like living in a city and I like our modern stuff. We are speaking through a computer. I think, hallelujah. I don't want to give that back. <laughs> but the tribe, we don't need teepees to experience the tribal style of relationship. There are wonderful tribes in New York, okay? I've met some beautiful tribes in Hong Kong, which in many ways is a very unattractive city, <laughs> far too crowded, okay? We can make tribes through reaching out. But that's missing. It's missing catastrophically. No wonder we break because we're not designed to be able to meet all of the emotional needs of one child, let alone two. Mm -hmm. I to get that because otherwise we are ashamed. Right, right. So, you know, yeah. and it's, it's an observation that I'd had too was, you know, sitting there thinking about when I made a decision. First, I made a choice to be a stay-at-home mom because there was all the, you know, the benefit to doing that. And, and you know, and my yeah. reasons for doing that or choosing or thinking that's thinking that that's what I really wanted was because I didn't have that. And I didn't experience that coming and growing up. I felt like that was um, the lack and absence, you know, of a, of that mother figure in that way was a reason for why I had my unhappiness. And I thought I would do the opposite of that by staying home. But I just, I felt emotionally and intellectually really kind of stagnant there. You know, I was just one of those, like, this isn't, there's, there's not enough energy here for me. I've got a very active brain, a very curious brain and no disrespect to my son, but being alone at home with a toddler was not, you know, intellectually stimulating for me in that capacity. No. And I sat there and yeah. I thought from an anthropological standpoint, like you did, I, you know, I didn't write a book about it, but the, the thoughts occurred, which was in, in that hunter gatherer tribe, children would stay and be nurtured by the elders while all the able-bodied, strong, intelligent, whatever their capabilities were, men and women both, go off and do the things to contribute back into the organization, into the, you know, into the whole tribe overall. That we, that there is this idea that if you've got this to give, you continue to give it and that there are people that can't actually, that can't do that anymore, that can then take on that nurturing, the storytelling aspects of it. And, um, and I felt like, that made me feel better about choosing to have my son watched by my mother-in-law <laughs> and for me to go back and reinsert myself back into society in a way that allowed me to um, be a professional because I felt yeah. like that really wasn't my contribution to the greater good of our, of our community, you know, and the world overall was to stick me in a home by myself rather than do what I do, which is to be out and contributing, you know, to a bigger picture. Absolutely. We just, um, that's so true. I mean, and even in a city, even in a big city, there's, there's, um, you know, there's no need to return to the hunter-gatherer picture in order to have that tribal situation because you can't expect a mother or a father to be able to 
to create the sort of environment that forms the, 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 the bond and the attachment with a child in a consistent and sustained way if that parent's needs are not being fed along the way. It, it's really, that's a kind of a mathematical equation. You can't drive your car without putting in the, 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 the fuel. And, um, and in a regular and consistent way. And, and um, there's very, very few parents that will not start um, you know, shriveling up if you're just alone with your child. Your, your natural hunger for adult styles of dialogue will start screaming inside you after a few hours or after a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So the healthy situation, which is, is one in which we have access to a kind of a net of, of people surrounding us. We, we need the other adult friend voices, whether it's, whether it's blood family or, or not. It usually works best when we're with people that, you know, a shared values kind of, uh, of a tribal situation. Um, and, you know, if I had, the, if I had a kind of a parallel existence, I would write a book about that as well. But, but the, the, the big prize for, for today, and this is what my current book is about, The Inner Child Journeys. The other, the other, I said there were two reasons why we stumble as parents and we don't give of our best all of the time. The second big, big reason, and this is what I find so interesting, is that we get incredibly triggered. Mm-hmm. We get incredibly triggered and, and there is no, we get triggered in all of relationships. We get triggered our pets. But there's probably nobody in our lives that trigger us as powerfully as our children do. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from the beginning, from the very beginning, from conception onwards. And, and we don't get triggered randomly. There is a pattern to it that is incredibly interesting and useful to understand. Our children, just by being themselves, through no effort of their own, they bring up, and I'm sure that you know this, they bring up um, feelings that are from those places where you've been wounded emotionally in your life. They, they, show, they show us, they show us those wounds, uh, but it's in a kind of a code because if we don't know how to decode what, what it is that we're feeling, we're very much at risk of blaming our child for how they make us feel. Mm-hmm. And that's why we get all of that, all of that, that negative dialogue in our heads that says this kid is a brat, this kid has no respect, oh, my God, what's wrong with this baby? What a fussy baby. Oh, no, I got a fussy baby. I didn't want one of the fussy ones. I got the wrong sort. You know, um, all of that stuff. Or I must be, what's the matter with me? This is the self-blame. We either blame our child or we blame ourselves. What's wrong with me? I'm a bad mom and I'm a, I'm a rotten dad, etc., etc., etc. So um, uh, that is an indicator. Those, those experiences, we tend to view them as wrong. This is something, this is, this is the kind of the off story, right? This is the, it's not supposed to happen. This is the, um, you know, we, we, we kind of frame it as failure. And yet I think there's a much more dynamic perspective on this much more um, vital it's part of the plan those triggering moments are part of an evolutionary necessity that you could end up being very grateful for and i don't want to be glib in saying that because it's 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 difficult the parenting challenges can drive you kind of stir crazy sometimes overwhelming but they if you read those moments as a signal 
And when you have time, not when your interaction is needed in an emergency, but when you have a moment, and it doesn't need to take too long, you know, maybe when you're having a shower in the morning, um, go inward and, 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 and reflect on what is it that's coming up for me? Because that first, that first question is the beginning of a revolution. What is it that's coming up for me? Why do I get so angry when my baby cries? Why do I feel so helpless when my, when my toddler has a tantrum? You know, um, why do I feel so stuck when my child wants me to play with her and I don't like playing with her? It's boring, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why do I feel so jealous when my wife is breastfeeding? You know, why do I freak out when my child doesn't do her homework? You know, and these themes tend to be quite universal. You know, they are sort of culture proof, ethnicity proof in many ways. Why is that coming up for me? And then you turn inward. What was it like for me at that time of my life? At that age, how was I being treated? Or when I was expressing that side of my nature, the same as my child, how was that treated in my family? Now you've got a healing path that's opened up for you. That uh, the, 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 most, the, the power moment in my inner child journey that I use is when that was going on for you as a, as a child or as an adolescent or as a baby, the stuff that was hurtful, what was your wish then? What did you need to be different? And you will discover if you go into a contemplative state, there's a, there's a, there's a deep kind of magical wish. I wish somebody had listened to me. I wish somebody had picked me up when I cried. I wish somebody protected me. I wish people let me be angry. I wish people respected my opinion. Um, I wish to let me do what I loved in school instead of forcing me to do maths or geography or something I didn't love, etc., etc. You know, whatever the wish is pertaining to the stuff that's being brought up by through that triggering moment. And that wish can be then fast forwarded to your current moment in life with a message about a need from your inner child that has been waiting your whole life to be met and fulfilled. Here's where the fun begins. Because there is, if, if you're willing to be a little playful and creative, there is always an adult appropriate way to have that deep um, developmental need fed, whether it's a need to express something or call out a boundary that you need in your life or, you know, have more nutrients, more support, whatever that more freedom of some kind, whatever that developmental wound was, it has an answer in your life as it is now. That is exciting. Mm -hmm. That is a moment of tremendous liberation. Your child through all of the crap that you go through at home, you know, without planning to do though, to do so has brought you a, a powerful reminder of something that has been waiting your whole life to be completed. Thank you for that. The moment felt awful, challenging, unbearable, but, you know, once I read what it means for me, I have an opportunity for healing and, and, and incredible expansion in my life. And then this is how our children grow us up, you know. It's as if most of us have half of our childhood needs met and we have opportunities to get the second half as adults, but that stuff seems to be buried. We forget about it. We ignore it. We don't want to look at it. It's too scary, too shameful and embarrassing. Your kids will bring it home. Mm -hmm. You can't escape once you have kids. They bring that stuff home. And 
but the, those kinds of conflicts ease the, your, 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 let's invent a word here, your triggerability, your, your vulnerability to being triggered in those places gets less and less and less. It takes more and more and more to trigger you, to get you triggered. As you start to feed that deep, unmet developmental need from your inner child, saying yes to your inner child. And um, the ultimate beneficiary is your actual child. Because what they need isn't just that you do the right stuff. That's, that's, not, that, that's too bland an idea of parenting. That's not what your kids need. If you come along and say, I ticked all the attachment boxes, well, come on, mum. I still don't know who you are. You're not being real. Mm-hmm. You, you, you might have ticked all the boxes for me, but you look starved, mum. You look, you look broken, mum. And I can feel that. And they, they need our happiness. They need, and wait, happiness is too shallow. They need our realness. They need to see a fulfilled parent, even if we spend a little bit less time with them. But when we're there, we're, we have more energy. We're exciting to be around when we're well fed. You know, this is such a win-win. Mm-hmm. And therefore, my book doesn't tell you what to do as a parent. There's a map inside you that by feeding your own inner child, inner adolescent, inner baby, it sharpens your intuition that, so if you say yes, if you're listening to your inner child, that's how you get to understand uh, your child's, your actual child's most baffling behavior. You start to be able to decode their weird behavior because when you, the more you connect to your inner child, the more you get these aha moments that say, ah, oh, that's what I really needed when I was going berserk, when I was, you know, being, you know, telling lies, when I was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of the nutshell of, of the story. And the inner child journey, you can do it very in-depth in a kind of a therapy scenario environment, or you can just do it very lightly in conversation with a friend that you trust weaving the conversation in and out like what what was your childhood like you, you and i could be sitting together at a cafe and you could be saying to me oh my god i was listening to two hours of tantrums last night i'm absolutely exhausted i wanted to break a window i wanted to scream and just as a friend if i'm curious and i care about you i could ask you what was that like for you when you had your tantrums as a kid what happened for you that's a beautiful conversation to have Definitely. I know with my experiences with my, my children, you know, um, I've got a 14 year old daughter. She does actually watch and listen to the show. So I'm always careful about some of the things that I talk about, but we, we talk about this quite a bit and I have had to, um, I've had to apologize more times than I care to admit, you know, for, for having the young version of myself show up you know, in a moment that mom was supposed to be there, because what I had noticed is that we are now together in this age group of where things really started to get super challenging for me at her age. And and when you talk about, uh, you know, the triggering effect, you know, I find that at times when she is being um, obstinate, she is being demanding. She gets to say and behave in a way that I was never allowed to do. And I would never have been allowed to do, you know? And so I, I watch her express anger and defiance. And, and then what happens though, unfortunately for me is the, if I start to feel trapped 
and I start to feel, I, I start to feel small again because I, I've had this experience with her where her in that state starts to look like my mom yelling back at me. And, and so then it's like, whoa, and, and you're right. So then I walk away. And once I start to recognize that that's what's going on here, that this has nothing to do with this, with this girl and this child in front of me, that now what's coloring this whole, this whole experience is that memory being triggered, that feeling in my body coming up that I'm in a situation I can't get out of and now I'm stuck. And then that starts to get the defense you know, mechanisms of either wanting to just run, seclude, or fight back. And, you know, I found at times that I've blurted out things that I wish I could have said to my mother and never did, because now I'm revisiting this topic there. And then I have to put my tail between my legs and I have to go sit down on my daughter's bed. We have to talk about this and we have to, you know, and I have to apologize. And, um, and so, you know, but you're right. My whole experience in the last few years with them in these types of moments has been, oh my God, remember how miserable it was and look where you're at today as an adult and look what you're trying to heal from today. And do you have to keep living that life? You know, can you start to do the things that you wanted to do when you were 14, 15 years old? And it is, it's like a second half of life. And at you, as you said, a different experience with your children when you suddenly go, yeah, I now I know exactly what she needs from me right now because I knew I, I feel I feel me in that moment and what I didn't get. And now I know what she, what she needs. And it is, it's mind blowing, you know, and it, it's emotional as all get out. That's, there's no Absolutely, doubt about that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things about being a parent that we're in the situation that you just described, which is so, so widely shared exactly as you said it, that we, we're, we often find ourselves um, between a rock and a hard place insofar as, our children will, will demand and expect from us the support to be the very things that we were not allowed to be. So, you know, our mums and dads said, no, don't you talk back like that. And your daughter is saying, all of our children are saying, I, I expect you to hear me when I talk back, you know, because you're, you're my mum, but you're, you know, this is a democracy here. I have a voice mm-hmm. and I have a very, very powerful voice, creepy mm-hmm. note. Because I'm not afraid of you in the way that your mom made you be afraid of her. I'm not ashamed around you in the way that you were around your mom because your mom got you to that place. Therefore, my voice is going to be very loud. And to the extent that that voice was taken from you, the voice of self-assertion, especially truth to authority, you know, that voice was removed when we were children for, for not all, but most of us. So the uh, children, in a very inelegant way, will say, this is what it sounds like. And it's not that we, it's, this has nothing to do with us being kind of pushovers and not having boundaries about how we want to be talked to. But the art of supporting a child's power while saying, yeah, but there's a limit. You're not allowed to hit me. You're not allowed to insult me. You're allowed to say how you feel and make it strong but I won't, I won't accept an attack, okay? That's an art form. Mm-hmm. And most of us have very bad role models for delivering that conflict resolution love, right? So uh, you do feel so trapped. And, and, and I really relate to what you were saying in that the first thing that comes up for us is it tends to be the automatic parent, which is that we start to sound like our own mother sounded or like our own father sounded. You know, we get very out of control and we overreact quite often. And um, 
you know, what I'm struggling with in, in my own journey as a father right now is uh, my daughter is 21 and she's living uh, overseas in New Zealand, studying art, but she really wavers a lot in terms of making commitments to, um, to her vocation. And um, I, I'm so surprised at myself. I thought that I would just really trust that process and be supportive and, and really, you know, allow her the mystery of how that unfolds, that a young woman comes to her own vocation in her own way. It's pressing some incredible buttons. It's just playing piano on my keyboard, you know. So many buttons are being pressed. And it's pushed me back to the, the conflict that I had with my dad about his academic expectations of me, and we used to fight a lot. Mm. And I find myself sometimes exploding and sounding exactly like the worst that my dad sounded. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is I feel ashamed of that because I sort of I swore not to do that. Um, and I know that I'm in good company because uh, this is this is where most of us are at. This is what happens initially. And it's okay. So it begins with a mess. But it's just like you were saying um, that, you know, you discovered the need to reclaim that lost voice from your, from your childhood about passing it back to your mom and, and, you know, the part of you that wanted to say, stop, mom, you're scaring me or whatever it was. I, I don't know what, but you know, to, to stand up for yourself, you know, young woman to elder woman. You, you want to reclaim that voice. And I dare say in many ways in your life you already have. And then your daughter brings you the next layer of that growth imperative and that, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So there are, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to see how... So many people really already understand that process and are doing good work with that process. And I've just kind of added in my book um, a helpful framework for that with some good reminders in there about remember what you wished for. You know, that deep, the, you know, I'm not saying the trivial wish for more chocolate I'm, and more screen time. I'm saying what was your longing then developmentally? And it was in the story you told of something to do with your right to stand up, to have a boundary, to say stop, to say don't, you know, mm-hmm. don't push me, don't push me, talk to me, but don't push me. Something, something in that kind of ballpark. Right. Yep. And um, and and like you, I'm I'm learning I'm learning about trust right now. My some huge lessons, and um, I wasn't trusted enough in my youth. My for lack of a better word, my career moves were very, very, um, it was a huge zigzag that went on for a while. And I, I'm sure that would have terrified my parents, you know, and um, God, the things that I did. <laughs> and you're not going to go was, into details? Are you going to tell? <laughs> I don't know. Is there any, is, is, uh, depends who's listening in the, on the call, right? Oh, well, it's a, it uh, is a, an adult show, but once it's published, anybody can hear it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I did, you know, like, um, oh, my gosh. For a while I was driving a truck and smoking cigarettes as I drove and, you know, um, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but it's just that I wasn't meant to be. 
I had other potentialities in me that were completely asleep. Mm-hmm. I love truck drivers. I love driving my truck. Um, but, but, but just the abandonment of, of something else that I, I was supposed to be doing was, mm-hmm. was deep. I was working for the National Crimes Authority in Australia, you know, helping, you know, as a clerk, helping help these horrible kind of detectives, you know, investigate addicts. You know, what a horrible place. to. I, I was profoundly depressed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I don't know. I have no idea who I am and where I want to go. I just landed in this because I needed a job. And so those years in my early 20s were incredibly grim on the inside because nobody had really asked me, what do you love? Mm-hmm. What do you love? Who are you? Do, pay attention, you know, pay attention to the things that you linger in front of. What do you like to read? What do you like to look at? What conversations do you come alive in? Because there's a hint in there about, you know, who you are, you know, what your life purpose is and what you're supposed to be doing. And because there was nobody asking me that. School teachers mm-hmm. don't ask that for the most part. Right. They get you to sit exams, but they don't want to know who you actually are. They standardize you, but they don't. There's very few schools that do this. So the feeling of being vocationally lost was um, agony for me. And so I do get triggered by my daughter experimenting with all kinds of things as she does. You know, she drove around Australia and volunteered in the desert in an Aboriginal community. And, and, you know, when I take my own sort of inner adolescent fearful reactions out of the picture and I look at her, she is growing like a, and she's glowing like a supernova. You know, the experiences that she has had in her travels are immense and empowering. And um, I actually am in awe of what the, the things are that she does. But I, I've got this old kind of, these old glasses that cover my eyes sometimes. It's like a trance. It's mm-hmm. like a fever that comes over me that sees her through the lens of my own, you know, uh, very worried 21, 22-year-old life and I start to panic. Mm-hmm. So those are moments not to kind of bring that to her so much as I need to then talk to my partner, to my friends, you know, on occasion, I've gone back and had a little more therapy, my own inner child process. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, in fact, part of what came up for me is that I, I, I hadn't completed my adventurism from that time of life. I, mm-hmm. I worried too much about who am I going to be when I grow up. You know, I, I could have had I had been more self-confident, just thrown away the question and traveled and experienced everything and, you know, the pack the backpack thing. That was an incomplete journey for me. So I'm doing it now at 59, 58, 59 years of age. Mm-hmm. It's time for me to complete the incomplete journey of the 21, 22 year old instead of worrying about my daughter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that's clearly bring that thing home. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And there well, are plans for that, definitely. There And, you know, and that's fascinating about this because part of this, uh, you know, again, we're kind of really, uh, we're not diving into anybody who's expecting us to go page by page from this book. You're not going to get this. You're getting what the beautiful experience is outside of this with this conversation between Robin and I, because you're right. You know, 
what do kids do? They, and what do us reflecting on our experiences with them when they trigger us through there? Like I said, not only in the heat of the moment, do they make us aware of some of the wounds and the heals that we have to deal with. And like you said, I like that, that wish, you know, what, what am I asking myself? What did I wish at this moment in time I had gotten when I'm having this experience? But, you know, to, to find out that our true self may have been truncated in childhood through the experiences of the parenting that we got. Maybe it was authoritarian. And as you noted, it, there's a lot of that out there. Um, I know that through my kids, I did decide in some of the same ways that you're coming through right now that I didn't get to follow through on the things that I wanted to follow through on. And now I'm going to, and I probably wouldn't have arrived at that recognition at at such a deep and compelling way, if not for witnessing, you know, what was happening to my teenagers, you know, at that point in time when I wanted to, and a lot of people, you know, are beginning to see this about me. I always wanted to write. I always wanted to be a writer. That was not encouraged for me. I was pushed, you know, in a different direction. And I didn't like you in my early twenties have enough of my own, and I won't call it bravery. I I wasn't fearful of it, but compliance was a, a, is a big part of my story of that. It's just, it's easier to go along with what everybody wants in order to not break connection with my family. Like if I, if I defied connection, I broke connection and that's a terrifying thing for a child to grow up. Yeah. And so to not break connection, I just kind of followed through, but I also did escape. Like when I turned 18, I moved from Kansas, which I'm not sure how familiar you are with the States, but it's in the middle of authoritarian parenting land. And I (laughs) went all the way out to Seattle, which in 1995 was the center of the universe. It was where all of the cool things were going on. And so I did escape, but I was already set in a path that I didn't entirely choose on my own. And so now here at 47, I'll be 48 in a couple of months. I'm, I'm picking up where I left off, where I had put everything on hold for the sake of that experience. And I'm doing that because I'm looking at my kids going, I want them to, I want them to see this. I want them to see what it's like to do what you want, you know, not what somebody else is trying to show you, like how you can bounce back, you know, from those experiences. Um, and so that resonates with me with this whole idea and travel for me is a part of that. Like that's the way I always wanted to do and couldn't and didn't. And now it's like, why not? Like what's stopping me? And while my children grow from that experience, like we talk about, we, we connect this back to how our actual child learns from this. Well, then they get to see a parent full, right. Resourced, um, doing and being authentic and real. And they get to see, you know, what a great experience that can really be and not, you know, have yeah. to felt, you know, fall into buckets or directions that, you know, somebody's forcing them to do. I think that yeah. There's probably nothing, nothing more, um, nourishing, I think, more, more, um, kind of reinforcing for a child to see that their parent has the humility to be learners, but also the courage to be learners, you know, a growing parent, not, not a, um, I don't even like the idea of the, you know, it's a very common sense of the good enough parent because, because that, 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 that's a kind of a, a very flat and dead idea in my mind. You know, we, why be good enough? I want to keep growing, you know. Um, uh, we're wonderful. Good enough is boring. We're wonderful. But the, part of what makes us wonderful is, is, the, is that self-recognition that you want to keep growing, that you're, you're on a, a kind of a pathway of, of healing and growth and our kids love seeing that mm-hmm. they, they love to see us reclaim and, and um the lost parts of ourselves and and add even more and um you know that's quite exciting that so you're you're, you're very clearly a wordsmith 
And whether you're, you're putting your words on a page or, or ad-libbing and putting your words out into the universe and recording them for forever on a podcast, you're, you're very clearly a, a factory of, of, uh, of good sentences and, uh, and great ideas. And you can't help it. I love that. I love that principle. Is that I think your life purpose is that thing that you just can't help doing. Mm-hmm. You would do it accidentally uh, almost, and that's when you're in your flow. So um, um, I do say that a lot in, in, in um, just how much young people, children, adolescents, how much they get from watching their parent uh, in, uh, have an intentionality about their own growth. I think it's very, very nourishing for them, and even if they watch that from a distance. They're, um, they're proud of you. Mm-hmm. love being proud of them. Yeah, they do. And I, and I think that that is, a, you know, that's a part that <clears throat> sometimes when parents are beating themselves up for failing or feeling like a failure. And I know that I admitted and had said that I had failed at motherhood. And then a year later after, you know, going through therapy and healing, I was like, I didn't fail at anything. It's not like everybody gave me all the tools and I just didn't apply myself to it. Our, our construction of what parenting is, is what's failing you know, and, and that's where, um, I didn't have enough to begin with, you know, my, my, I was set up with deficits. I didn't even know existed, which is why you have a book about that. Like I didn't know where I had been held up. I didn't know where I was falling short. I didn't know how to read the signs and the triggers. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. That's, that's not failure. That's just this lack of awareness and a lack of understanding. And when you're able yeah. to then turn and reframe, that, you know, we're not, we're not failing at parents. Um, we just are learning new things about ourselves. And I like that you apply neuroscience to this and you speak to neuroscience. Cause for me, that was a big factor in my own, you know, Genesis here was seeing the, um, that we were no longer talking about this in, in theory, you know, and just in theory, but that we were able to measure this in the bodies and the brains and see these things that are happening and kind of, um, being able to apply them and go, gosh, all this instinct some of us had. And, you know, some people have had some really good instincts about parenting. Like you said, have you noted in culture? And I will tell you, I want to talk with you about that on a whole nother show because I've always also been fascinated by the differences in parenting and what they mean to society and culture and how that's actually happened over history. But some places have gotten it, like they've understood it for a millennia and others haven't. Um, And that's that inherited, you know, trauma generation after generation. And being able to break free of that is, is such a big deal. So it's, it's like, it's liberating. Um, I think in the States it's happening, maybe more so where you're at. I have seen a really a lot of good thought leaders come out of Australia, actually, on the topic of trauma-informed parenting and, and, and therapy and that. And I think there's pockets of it in the U.S. that are coming around, but there are still, uh, you know, pretty dense areas of lack of understanding, you know, of being able to break through and, and, and get into, you know, some of this stuff. That's a rich and long conversation, um, and um, I'd love to have that with you sometime. Um, I, I want to say something about failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't actually see it as that there are some cultures that have really got it in an absolute sense. You know, there are a lot of cultures that really, really get things that we in the West aren't doing so well. Um, you know, one of many examples is, is early attachment. You know, they, they do that so well, for instance, in some African, traditional African or South American cultures in a way that, that we neglect our babies quite dramatically in, in the modern Western world at the moment. Um, uh, that's one example. But, but every culture is an experiment. Every culture has some gifts 
and a few things that, that, that create more violence or more detachment. So not, not one culture has the complete picture, not from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, which means that we don't necessarily have to idealize uh, other cultures. There's um, what feels wonderful to me is that every human culture is what, what is brave and courageous about us is that we, we create an experimental um, approach. Our culture is a current experiment that needs to be subjected to evolution when we learn something new and better. And some cultural approaches are really to adapt to survival needs that were there and true a thousand years ago, but that aren't true anymore. Mm-hmm. Some cultures you know, do attachment really, really well, but they also bring violence to the child as, uh, as older children, a lot of it, because they're you know, instinctively trying to prepare children for, for war, mm-hmm. which was a kind of a survival reality for people a thousand years ago. Never mind that when you prepare children for war, it's usually, you know, you become the actual offender against the tribe next door to you. But um, uh, so that puts the whole thing of failure in, a, in another context. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, I mean, I, I use the word failure in a different sense than the context in which you just used it. And I guess maybe there's, you know, the comprehensive failure as a parent and that happens to an incredibly broken parent that has no resources. Um, or there's, there's the myriad little momentary failures that we all come to. But somebody in school said failure is wrong and there was a red pen on your page, you know. And there's not, um, I think that is a very disastrous approach to the meaning of failure. Somebody once said to me, every invention was the it came after 99 failures. Mm-hmm. I've heard that before. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, um, there's something sacred about failure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we need to kind of elevate our sense of failure to a whole new place and to have a whole new relationship with it. It's what you do afterwards mm-hmm. that makes all of the difference. There are many failures in, 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 in any week for a parent. And um, they're there to be learned from. You know, we, have, we all have an automatic self and an intentional self. The automatic self is when you're going to overreact or underreact because you get triggered. You, there's not enough support. You're exhausted. You're overwhelmed. Your child triggers you. You overreact or you underreact. It's automatic. It's familiar. You've been doing that a lot. You'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the intentional self, which comes afterwards, which says, hold on a minute. I don't like how I have reacted or I don't like how I have I have failed to react just like everybody does. So let's have a conversation about that. First of all, one with me, and, and, and this indicates where I need to grow and heal. And, and the next to have a conversation with my child. And, and they don't need you to be unfailing. They need you to be open, to, to be a leader of those conversations. That gives them a voice. You know, say if you have a, a, a fight and you, it's regrettable and you yell things and we yell at each other and there's a slamming door, we can talk about that when, when the electricity calms down a little bit. How did you feel when I yelled at you? I want to hear you have a right of reply. Also, I'm feeling sorrow about my overreaction. I mean, those moments can be so very beautiful. And if a child grows up knowing that the world is filled with conflict, but I know what to do in conflict. Mm -hmm. 
I know what can come afterwards. That's a child that is not frightened of conflict so much. That's a child that will, that feels resourced. Yeah. Um, and I, and I know. believe that for my, my daughter, that is a gift. Um, and when we talked about this earlier and you mentioned it, I think that some people have some difficulties and that's probably their own healing that they need to deal with of that allowing that expression, like to know that you have a safe place for your child to be able to, you know, discharge all of those feelings and emotions yeah. from sadness to happiness to anger and, yeah. and that you're holding that space for them. Some people really do have a hard time looking it out from the outside inward of that without having gone through this experience and not see that as defiance, you know, and not see that as a bad thing that somehow we need to be able to uh, manage, you know, all of those things and box those emotions in. And it is difficult, I think, for, um, for some people to allow that and not feel that guilt and shame that they're being, and this is a word, and I've talked about this on some other shows, of feeling like their children are running over them. Like they have to assert some power, right? And some authority over that. But that's that old, you know, those are the old wounds back there. Those are the old voices in our head. Those are the Hardly, old- Absolutely. Well, look, I, I, I want to make the distinction between our children's right to express their feelings and to do so responsibly, mm-hmm. even if it means raising their voice. There's a, there's a, we do need to make a distinction between that and our children insulting us mm-hmm. calling us names for sure um you know making demands that are just you know not healthy for us you know we we, we must express our limits and, and assert our, our boundaries and our limits very strongly that doesn't mean do not express yourself that means you take ownership of your feelings and you can yell but you take ownership of your feelings mm-hmm. and as i do with mine and um um those are two different things so there's the, the, on the other side of this, there's the permissive parent that does let the child walk all over me. Or, and that, that's the underreaction. Mm-hmm. That's also a triggered thing, mm-hmm. you know. And there's so many parents that were abused and intimidated and overpowered by their own parent that they're really out to sea when it comes to their child's noisy, big emotions. They feel so, they're overcome with helplessness. The rationale, the story in the head says, you must let your child do, you know, you know, let them express themselves, which means let them scream at the top of their lungs in a cra- in a cafe or in a restaurant. It means let them hit me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let them hit each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The no boundaries kind of parent. That's an that's equally a triggered place of helplessness from their own childhood. And then what's up for that parent is some support for them to find their the self assertion how to be strong without being violent Mm -hmm. because violent is not strong. It's a weakness. Mm -hmm. How to be strong, not tough, strong. And that's, that was lost in their childhood. So um, there's some work that can be done around that, that is uh, uh, wonderfully empowering so that then they can stand up to their child. We need to stand up to our children but not stand over them. That's a completely different thing. Um, and it does begin with, with, with the healing of ourselves. So I think but, I wanted to say too, with, with the failure thing, just, just very quickly to round yeah. that off, just I like giving things a name because then it, it makes it more easy to remember. And I like to call it the afterwards. We do fail. Things do go wrong from day to day in our, in our dialogue with our kids. But then there's the afterwards. 
We, we, we can, there's so much. It's what we do afterwards that makes all of the difference, even after a traumatic moment, right? It's what we do afterwards, the holding, the coming back to connection when there's been a disconnection. That makes all of the difference. And, and in a way, you know, the, one of the main objectives of my book, you know, Child Journeys, is to relieve or even do away with parent guilt, that isolating, self-isolating moment in which we say, I failed, I was a bad parent, I need to go back and reread that book about how to get it right. And then it kind of, you know, it's like we shut the door on ourselves. Mm-hmm. What a sad, unnecessary, terrible moment that is. So this is about, hang on a minute, you, you failed. That's wonderful. What are you going to learn from that? You know, and if you understand your own childhood story, it removes guilt and it brings in forgiveness as night follows day. In many ways, my book ends up, I didn't, interestingly, did not set out to write about forgiveness. I don't ask people to forgive each other. I discovered through bringing my feelings about this process into words, that act of making it conscious onto a page. Oh my God, I'm talking about the experience of forgiveness and I hadn't realized that. So I needed to make a few uh, sections of, of the end of the book about forgiveness, not as a plan, but as this accident that happens to you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see, when you understand your own story, childhood story, and how things actually affected you, not just the uh, cerebral narrative, but how it felt for you to be a child from the inside, you're going to get compassion for yourself as night follows day. Mm-hmm. It's the ah, no wonder moment. Mm-hmm. My behavior might be crap, but you know what? I, I know why I'm so reactive. No wonder I'm so reactive. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I deserve a healing journey about that to make that better. And the same holds for any other person in your life, even people you don't like. We don't have to be afraid of not liking somebody. Well, I know we're all judgmental. You won't be able to switch that off. The cure for judgment isn't you saying, judging yourself for being judgmental and, you know, looking in the mirror, stop being such a judgmental person, you know. You, just be curious. And you, if you get what it was like for that person to be a young person, a child, you get flooded by these wonderful aha moments. And it's not that now I'm going to let you do all of the bad things you do, but wow, I really get you. And if the, the humbling moment is if I was just the knowledge that if I was in your shoes, I would be you. I'd be doing the, all of the shitty stuff that you do. I'd be doing all of the great stuff that you do. I would be, if I lived your life, that is, I didn't realize this until I wrote the book. That's what forgiveness is. Story is a massive, powerful tool That'll bring forgiveness. You don't have to try so hard to forgive. It'll happen to you. Mm-hmm. See the story. You'll know. You'll know where your child is coming from. You know where you're coming from. And when that compassion is there, the pathway towards learning new and better behaviors becomes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It actually becomes exciting and it becomes enjoyable. It's an adventure. You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to learn to trust more. I'm going to learn to set better boundaries. I'm going to learn to bring back my voice and my self-assertion. 
I'm going to learn to reach out better because I forgot how to reach out and ask for help, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that story is for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Robin, this has been amazing. <laughs> um, how, you know, aside from the book, I, I want to get everybody connected with you. And like I said, your website is going to be linked into the podcast uh, notes for the thing. Um, the book again for everybody, I'll have a link to this to, to get it. it. I mean, it is this, he will take you through to my listeners and my watchers. He will take you through step-by-step step how to, um, you know, process all of this and experience all of this. Um, and like I said, I think our conversation today, I mean, talking with you, there, there's an obvious reason why it's worth the effort. Um, I think that a lot of the people that listen to the show are already looking for the reasons and, you know, and need to just keep hearing them, uh, you know, about how, you know, I don't want to say beneficial, beneficial seems like such a, a sterile term, but life changing is probably a pretty accurate, you know, description. Um, you know, there is a, there is a whole beautiful second half to life that we have available to us and, um, and, you know, it should and feel, you know, we should all feel like we're entitled to that. And that goes back to come back to removing guilt and shame, you know, don't feel shameful for wanting to reclaim, you know, um, a, a purpose and a better second half to everything. And, you know, going through this experience and, and your guidebook to that. And I think this conversation today is hopefully, you know, helping some people see and feel that they, you know, they, they deserve that, um, to have that. So your time is, you know, invaluable to me that we were able to coordinate this and be able to sit down and, and be able to do this conversation. So I'm very grateful for meeting you and, and being able to speak with you and, and learn from you today for sure. And me too, and me, was, I'm just delighted with that conversation. I'm really enjoying um, meeting you. And I love how conversation, uh, you know, included a little bit of your personal story, a little bit of my personal story, and uh, that makes it all the more special. So, um, so thank you. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate this opportunity very much. Cool. And thank you to your listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiracone.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurakoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.